Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, this is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. The latest sensation in artificial intelligence is inspiring both awe and dread. ChatGPT, a chatbot that can write like a human, built by the California company OpenAI. Need to craft a personal letter, an essay on Moby Dick, even computer code. ChatGPT will do it convincingly. It will also have a conversation with you, complete with self-deprecating humor. And it's free and publicly available online. But what does it mean to live in a world that lets AI do the talking? This hour, we explore the potential uses and abuses of AI-generated text. I'm Mina Kim. Welcome to Forum. When ChatGPT opened to the public less than two weeks ago, it was immediately swamped by users, more than a million in the first few days, eager to try the chatbot that can write on seemingly any topic in any style. A college-level comparative literature essay, physics concepts in simple terms, a birthday message to an in-law sensitive about their age. The chatbot by San Francisco-based company OpenAI was trained on the vast reserve of internet data to sound knowledgeable and witty, human-like. And its possibilities feel endless, as do its societal implications. We take a closer look at both this hour and hear from you. What would you use a tool like this for? Natasha Tiku is tech culture reporter for The Washington Post. Natasha, thanks so much for coming on Forum. Thanks for having me. Also, Kevin Roos is with us, technology columnist for The New York Times. Kevin, also glad to have you on. Thank you for having me. I'm sure both you and Natasha have played around with ChatGPT a lot. (laughs) I'm wondering, what are some of the things you asked it to do that it did well, Kevin? What were you impressed by? Uh, well, I've just been throwing a jumble of different prompts at it. Everything from, you know, please help me plan my uh, family's uh, upcoming vacation, recommend some places where we might want to go based on some uh, some different criteria. I've also been using it as kind of a tutor. Um, the other night I was, I was trying to learn about this concept in machine learning um, called an attention function or attention mechanism. And it's something that I've never quite managed to understand. And Google, you know, if you search that on Google, you get a bunch of complicated white papers. But I just asked ChatGPT, could you explain this concept to me? And if it wasn't uh, still something that I could understand, I would just say, could you make that a little simpler? Um, and it would, it did it perfectly. And so I ended up just spending maybe an hour with ChatGPT just teaching me about these things that um, that I had never managed to learn about on my own. Oh, wow. How about you, Natasha? What have you used it for? Well, I actually had the opposite experience um, <laughs> as Kevin with um, with using it for teaching me concepts. I did try to get ChatGPT to teach me about diffusion models, um, certain aspects of uh, diffusion models, which are text to image generators. And it didn't know, uh, it gave me the wrong diffusion model. And then once I pointed it in the right direction, it still couldn't, um, uh, I guess, get specific enough for dumb it down for me. But I did have good luck. Um, I 
I uh, put in a prompt from one of my coworkers asking it to generate um, a politician's statement after a mass shooting. Mm. And then we got more and more specific. We asked it to do a Democrat's statement and then a Republican statement and then a far left statement and a far right statement. And it was like impressively spot on. And, you know, that might be because these statements have become so formulaic, but it got those subtle differences really quickly. And um, I, I was, I was, a little bit blown away. Yeah, I'm blown away just hearing those examples. All I did was just ask it to write a birthday card to my spouse, you know, just to get my feet wet. And that kind of thing has been around, right? It wrote something very formulaic, like, you make my heart skip a beat. <laughs> I hope your day is as special as you are to me, kind of stuff. But um, but I, I guess that's the point. These things have been around, but this one, Kevin, feels different. Chat GPT feels different. Why? Well, I think that ChatGPT is a game changer for natural language processing. It's capable of generating responses to text-based questions that sound like a human conversation. This technology has the potential to completely change the way we interact with our devices, making them feel more personal and intuitive. Um, actually, I just got that answer from ChatGPT. I asked it to... <laughs> write me a two-sentence statement about why ChatGPT is a big deal in the style of a reporter from the New York Times appearing on the radio show KQED Forum. And that's what it uh, it spit back. So that's the AI's answer to why this is a big deal. I think my own answer is, um, is that it's so versatile. I mean, we've had large language models, these AI systems before that can do um, you know, various narrow tasks. You know, they can have a customer service interaction. Um, they can, you know, they can write poems or they can do um you know bits of code that can complete text you um, know in a in a code base what makes chat gpt different for me is just how flexible it is and how many different things it can do well and was my summary of what it's doing i mean it was really really brief that it's sort of scraping the vast reserve of the internet how it works like when you type in because this is free and available online you just go to chat open chat.openai.com and type in a prompt in the the little bar that you see after you set up an account. Like what happens when you type something in? How does the tech actually work? It's pretty complicated, but basically it's taken this huge corpus of data, you know, billions and billions of examples of text pulled from all over the internet that have been fed into this, this machine learning model. And it's basically predicting. So it's sort of autocomplete on steroids. It's, you know, given that these 10 words appear in this order in this sentence, what are the most likely next 10 words uh, based on everything that this model has um, has learned about language? So it works the same way for text and essays as it does for code. And if you, you know, ask it to solve physics problems or do math, it'll it, it works the same way. It's not a traditional search engine, which is going out and, you know, looking for sort of canonical sources on the internet. Hmm. And Natasha, talk about some of the impacts that you have discovered in your reporting. You wrote about a pool installer with dyslexia. What did a chatbot like this do for him? Right. So um, we talked to some of the people who have been, uh, you know, early adopters who've been using this technology or previous versions of it. Um, and they had been using it to just kind of polish their 
professional emails or, um, you know, challenges with writing professional emails for people who have dyslexia to automate the process of just making it sound like, um, you know, a polished version of uh, what you would want to send your client. Um, we talked to people who were using it as a thesaurus, um, people who used it to, um, uh, like write a letter to their kid explaining, um, from Santa explaining that he wasn't real, um, various little, uh, tasks, uh, kind of low stakes, creative tasks. Um, but I, I did want to add a caveat to your, when you were saying it's available for free, it's available for free for now. Um, OpenAI is currently in a research phase where they want you to, A, they get a lot of data by your choices, um, you know, the, the prompts that you're putting in and also by you upvoting or downvoting whether you got the right answer. So part of the reason why it feels, um, you know, part of the reason why people are having such a strong reaction to it is it's one of the few chances we have to interact with state-of-the-art technology. There are other um, companies that are working on similar chat interface large language models, but they are keeping it kind of under wraps. Um, so uh, OpenAI does have the best technology that we can see when people do try to compare them to um, competitors like Google or Facebook, but um, it's also that we have the ability to play with this one. Yeah, that is such a good point. It's not like Google hasn't been working on this for a while, but Natasha, why is OpenAI sort of more willing to put out sort of an experimental model like this <clears throat> that can also get a lot of criticism? Right. I think that it has to do with, um, you know, the big tech companies are extremely averse to bad press. Um, you know, uh, I think a lot of the the feedback for um, from chat GPT is like, wow, this is going to put Google out of business. You know, like, why wouldn't I want, um, you know, someone who is just going to give me the answer as opposed to, you know, 10 blue links that I have to click through. This is such an onerous process. Um, the other way is simple. It's conversational. It's easy. Um, but Google actually had already been thinking about this. They have put out research papers um, talking about using their own large language model um, and reformulating search through a chat interface. And, um, you know, you can think about all of the ways that could potentially go wrong, right? Um, there are lots of questions you can ask where there is no one right answer. Um, you know, if we game it out a little bit further, we could see um, we could see a chat interface running into a lot of the same problems that we've seen on social media, right? Where um, the, the one right answer, the one answer that was given could be highly politicized. Um, you know, should I get a COVID-19 vaccine? Um, what happened during the Holocaust? Um, you know, and, and even more than that, like, who gets to decide what is politicized and what is not? Um, and OpenAI, uh, they they don't have the same, um, you know, they don't have the same strictures. They're not a publicly traded company. Um, they also, uh, they, so they started out as a nonprofit research lab. They're now a public company, or sorry, they're now a, a for-profit company, but they have a billion dollar investment from Microsoft and they have other venture funding. And it's really Microsoft's responsibility to make products out of their technology. So they kind of have the freedom to just um, put state-of-the-art tech out there and build a lot of, like, 
FOMO and a lot of hype around it. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, they, they, their interest is in building towards this concept that they call artificial general intelligence, like AI that is as smart as a human or smarter than a human. Um, and they, you know, in speaking to executives from the company, they, you know, part of their, their goal is to make people excited about tech. And as you can see, like, they have been fulfilling that function more than ever this year with models like ChatGPT and, and Dolly too. Yeah, they are the company that put out Dolly, which we also did a show on because it also felt like another game-changing moment. But Natasha, you do allude to some of the dark sides uh, and the downsides of this technology, and we'll get into those right after the break. But before we do, it has been fascinating to hear people's reactions to using the technology, like with regard to its ability to rephrase emails to make them more polite and professional. People have been like, wow, my career would look very different uh, if this had been available to me years ago. Or even that example you gave of the letter from Santa coming clean to a kid and the parent saying that they were emotional after reading it and it was exactly what they would have wanted to say to their child it is pretty amazing we're talking about ChatGPT by a san francisco-based company called open ai uh, that basically can communicate on any topic that you ask it at the moment but it has its glitches and we will get into those after the break we're talking with kevin roos technology columnist for the new york times and natasha tiku tech culture reporter for the washington post and you are listeners What's your reaction to this? What would you use a tool like this for? Email forum at kqbd.org or call us 866-733-6786. More on Forum after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. You may have played around with the newest AI sensation, the chatbot ChatGPT. It can teach you stuff, complex things, write in verse, compose a convincing letter from Santa Claus. But it also has issues, and we'll get into those uh, now with Kevin Roos, technology columnist at the New York Times, and Natasha Tiku, tech culture reporter for the Washington Post. And you, our listeners, How could you see a tool like this being used or potentially abused? Have you used ChatGPT? What did you create with it? You can post on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, at KQED Forum, email forum at kqed.org. Give us a call, 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. Okay, so there are some little things that 
this chat bot doesn't do super well and big things that it could point to that could be like totally dystopian. Let's start with the little things, though. Uh, Natasha, first of all, it feels like it really seems to have difficulty with basic facts, math problems. I think in your piece, someone said it doesn't even really have common sense. How does that show up? Um, that shows up in in a, a lack of <clears throat> excuse me in a lack of reliability uh, with with the answers. As you know, Kevin was talking about earlier. Um, you know, this is a it, you know some people call it like a, just kind of an advanced probability machine. You know, it's it's showing you what is the likely next word in the sentence. Um, you know, this is these are the kind of concepts and words that go together typically. So because it's not kind of going out and seeking information and there is a large and very contentious debate about whether this technology can quote unquote understand anything, um, you know, whether some of the emergent properties we're seeing that look so much like it's answering our questions, like we're having a conversation, whether there's any any understanding behind there. Um, it's it's uh it's very easy to fall into the trap that you think it's you know, going out and seeking information, giving you the right and best answer. Um, but it's it's really not. Um, and there's no function. There's no interface that's uh, kind of telling you when it's right or wrong. Um, however, this particular model that OpenAI put out, it is an improvement on previous ones. Um, you know, what happened is that uh, a chat or sorry, GPT-3, which was um, an earlier model from OpenAI, they actually wanted to fix the problem with the lack of reliability and the lack of correct answers and even just the lack of giving you what you ask for when you put in a prompt. So they created something called Instruct GPT. And what they did is they had humans um, kind of fine tune. They they hired a, a number of contractors, like 40 contractors, um, to try to uh, get involved in the in the final stage of training the model, um, you know, vetting answers, um, creating some data that could help create a more conversational process at the end. And they found that it really not only improved like reliability, but then users were actually really liking how the model worked more. And this result, like the, then they did another kind of more, um, even more rigorous process, even more human involvement in fine tuning. And the result was this chat GPT. So it sounds like you're having a conversation with a smart person, but it's still kind of the same underlying data. Um, and we don't even have that much information about the data. If you like the most, uh, I'm looking at now um, what uh, what OpenAI tells us about the data and it's like four bullet points. You know, one of them is English language Wikipedia. So <laughs> we don't exactly know where they're getting the information from. And so is that why, Kevin, when people say that this will end Google or search engines like it, that you have your doubts? I'm assuming you do. <laughs> yeah, I do. I, I don't think it's going to replace search engines like Google. What I think will ultimately happen is that it will be fused with search engine technology. So maybe, you know, Google or Bing or some other search engine will have sort of a, a you know, an, an AI chatbot mode and a, a sort of regular search engine mode. And it will be able to kind of switch between those because I think there are certain categories of queries for which the traditional search engine is obviously better. 
And now we're seeing that there are certain categories of queries for which the the GPT answer may be better. But I think it will. They, these companies will need to figure out how to solve this issue of just being factually incorrect about matters uh, of great importance and matters of no importance. But it it does seem like a, a sticking point for these this type of model in particular, and one that even their their you know instruct GPT uh, feedback process has not been able to fix. Well. Listener Greg writes, can you ask your guests whether ChatGPT accesses the internet to answer questions or if it relies completely on an internal database residing on its servers that it's sucked up from the real internet? That's question one. Maybe I'll ask you that really quick, Kevin. Yeah, so it doesn't crawl the internet in the same way that a that a search engine would, like Google, um, and its data is scraped from the internet. So in some sense, it is crawling a version of the internet, but that version of the internet is is limited and is is not current. Um, ChatGPT's knowledge base cuts off in. 2021. So if you ask it about something that happened last week, it's not going to know what you're talking about. Um, and it may give you some answer that doesn't make sense. So it's sort of a historical snapshot of parts of the internet. But as Natasha said, we don't know exactly which parts, and we don't know um, exactly when they were accessed. So for example, this came up when I, I was trying to get it to write a, a monologue for a late night show with some topical jokes. And um, and it started giving me jokes about um, President Trump pulling out of the Paris Climate Accords. So, so not exactly the freshest humor. <laughs> right. Well, Greg's second question is, could you have a chat GPT resident on your iPhone that's disconnected from the Internet? And so I guess the answer would be yes-ish, right? Yeah, you could. Um, you could have this all run locally on a device. Um, it would take a lot of computing power um that your your device is prop my my iphone at least is probably not capable of doing that but maybe the iphone uh 17 or 18 will be able to yeah and then uh this listener writes why not just interview chat gpt for this episode ha ha i mean we could have probably right we did invite open ai to come join us today on the program, but they declined to come on. But it is true. When you go to chat GPT, it has a disclaimer. While we have safeguards in place, the system may occasionally generate incorrect or misleading information and produce offensive or biased content. It is not intended to give advice. It immediately says that, Natasha, as soon as you get on. And that is something that we all have to keep in mind, right, that its answers are very much taken from just what humans put on the internet and in other data sets, right? So it's going to come with biases. Yes. Um, and that's something that AI researchers have been warning about for a, a really long time. Um, and that's something that uh, companies developing AI have not put a lot of um uh a lot of effort into. Um also I just wanted to back up and say that um OpenAI also simultaneously has been working on uh web GPT that goes out and looks at the web for answers. And so there is a possibility that soon they might combine the two. They haven't said definitively whether or not they would, but we do know that's a capability um, that they could 
potentially, uh, you know, released to the public. But yeah, so, so um, you know, you can think about it as like, like these, these machines just learning and replicating, kind of encoding all of the biases that you see from the web. And it's certainly not, you know, sometimes people describe it as just like reflecting humanity or, you know, this is just all of the, like, this is just the way humans are. But as you can see from even like the one bullet point I read about what's in their English language, Wikipedia does not reflect humanity, right? Um, uh, sometimes um, like another common thing that is used to feed large language models is outgoing links from Reddit. Again, not a reflection of humanity. There's, um, you know, Reddit has a certain, a very specific kind of user base. Um, and uh, so researchers have been pointing out that these biases are in the data sets and we see um, race bias, gender bias, um, you know, certainly a Western bias, um, political bias and uh, religious bias. Um, and, uh, you know, they have been saying that this very much influences the behaviors of these models, the answers that they come up with, um, the limitations, uh, especially because, as Kevin explained, you know, these are pattern recognition machines in a way. And uh, what we have seen companies respond with is is kind of filtering these data sets after the fact. So we haven't mm. seen a lot of energy on curating the data sets or um, a lot of investment on, on that side of it. It's more, um, you know, trying to filter out some of the, um, the violent content, the graphic content, a lot of the pornographic content, which is a, a large part of many of the data sets, especially the image data sets. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we might see some of that change, hopefully, but it's it's been researchers warning about this for years. In fact, um, you know, it it actually took uh, one of the one of the image data sets that's been used for more than a decade. Um, it took them about that long to realize, hey, we shouldn't have been using this. This actually had like really, really, really deeply offensive content, mm -hmm. um, and hopefully, it won't take us that long to to realize, you know, what's what's appropriate and what's yeah. okay to be using now. Yeah. Well, caller Pete sounds like Pete has some concerns. Pete in Oakland, you're on. Hi. Yeah, I, I mean, along with your your uh, your guess, I have a great concern about this this kind of thing because it's drawing upon an ocean of data, and that ocean of data is really stored in the internet, and we have seen how that ocean can be polluted by deliberate acts. Uh, people, you know, Russian bot farms and so on. So it seems to me absolutely certain that this is going to follow along those lines. Pete, thanks. Uh, Kevin, to the extent that ChatGPT has safeguards, what are they, especially around the kinds of things that Pete and Natasha were just talking about? Yeah, so OpenAI has done a number of things to try to limit the misuse of ChatGPT. Um, there are sort of entire categories of things that it just won't respond to. So if you ask it, you know, help me, uh, give me instructions for making a bomb, uh, won't do that. If you say, you know, which uh, I, I tried to ask it, um, who was the best Nazi, just to 
but whether it would respond and it didn't, it scolded me and it said, you shouldn't ask who the best Nazi was because the Nazis were evil basically. And, um, and so there are a number of categories of questions concerning, you know, political, uh, controversial political topics or stereotypes um, that it just won't touch. Um, and so that's part of the safeguards. Um, and the other piece of it that I think they've been trying to contain is, you know, as, as Natasha mentioned, it, it can do certain things with code. It can write working code. It can find bugs in people's code. And so this could be misused to say, not just find the bug in this innocuous piece of code, but find the find the vulnerability in this piece of code, figure out, you know, a hacker could use it, for example, to see, uh, to try to figure out how to hack a piece of software. So OpenAI has been trying to limit um, those kinds of misuses, but users, even in just the short time that this has been available, have already been starting to find um, certain workarounds to get it to it to do things that it, it's not supposed to. Hmm. Easy to game. We're talking with Kevin Roos of The New York Times and Natasha Tiku of The Washington Post. And you, our listeners, are joining the conversation about this chatbot that can basically write anything that you would like it to communicate with you like a person and more. Uh, MK and Sunnyvale is with us. Hi, MK. What would you like to say? Hi, uh, I am a teacher, and I wonder if students will misuse chat GPT and answer their history prompts and language prompts and even write CS code using chat GPT. So that's one abuse I'm very worried about. Thank yeah. You. You're not alone. Listener Ami writes, how is this going to impact how students learn to write? I can imagine high school, college and university students using these products to ghostwrite their assignments. Are the companies simultaneously designing screening programs that instructors could use to ensure that papers are written by our students? Well, I want to bring in Daniel Herman to the conversation. Daniel is a high school teacher and author of an article in The Atlantic called The End of High School English. Daniel, thanks so much for being with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. So you actually put assignments that you have given to your students into chat GPT. How was the output? Were you impressed by it? Yeah, I was super impressed by it. And, you know, I mean, I guess the first thing that that comes up, especially when when people start really hand wringing about this is that, you know, um, it isn't going to be a binary that uh, either I'll do this work entirely on my own or I'll just paste the AP exam question into the chatbot and and steal its answer. As any of your listeners who has played around with ChatGPT knows that there's there's a wide spectrum in between those things, for example. So I'm a person who often finds the perfect word just escaping my brain. So usually if my wife is around, I'll just ask her, ask her and she'll know what I mean immediately. But let's say I'm working on a piece of writing and I ask the chatbot, so what's the word when you're waiting for something to happen and then just sort of left there waiting, feeling like you're dangling. And it tells me the word that I'm looking for is suspended animation, which indeed I was. That's super satisfying. I got my word. It also tells me that limbo would work, which is a cool image and not one that I that I uh, had been thinking about. So that might push this piece of writing in a new direction, either to, you know, uh, purgatories and bardos or, or conga lines and, and margaritas. Or let's say a student is writing a paper on on Moby Dick, which is my area of expertise, and uh, I appreciate you put it in your intro. <laughs> and they type type into the into the chat bot. So I'm writing this paper, and I've got good ideas about Captain Ahab and Ishmael and Starbuck and Queequeg. What am I missing? And the chat bot replies, 
you might think about how the white whale can be considered a character or how the ocean itself seems to have different characteristics at different times. The student may not have made that intellectually no matter how long they spent on that assignment. And now they had the opportunity to, ex to explore a new way of looking at the text. I'm not saying that either of those things is preferable to traditional methods of, of generating writing ideas, you know, pacing endlessly up and down the living room or, or banging one's head against the wall, but it isn't immediately clear to me that those things are just bad or plagiarism. Wow. Well, I guess what you're getting at is what would be okay with you with regard to how a student uses the tool and what wouldn't. So for example, uh, a student typing in the prompt that you gave them and then submitting to you uh, the response that ChatGPT gave it with a few little tweaks to make it sound like it came from them would not be okay, right? Yeah, that that's not ideal. I mean, any obviously, um, any teacher who really wants to um, help their students learn how to uh, how to think and how to engage with text and how to engage with their own mind. That is not what we're what we're looking for. And I have to say, just as sort of a blanket caveat, I teach at a small independent school in in the East Bay, and uh, my classes are are normally twelve to fifteen students. And my students will will certainly be be surprised that I'm uh, find myself speaking on behalf of technological intermediaries in the classroom, since I'm very old fashioned in my teaching. We write in spiral notebooks and read our read our writing aloud, but. To say the least, mine is not the typical high school English experience. Okay, that... but we're coming up on a break. We just have 20 seconds. But aren't you afraid that you wouldn't be able to tell the difference? Sure. And and again, I mean, I guess um, one of the things that makes it so so wild is that it can be this this back and forth, that they can ask for, for help getting started, get started, feed it back to it, spin things this way, this way and that. And um see see where it goes yeah where it goes from there yeah all right daniel stay with us after this break i've got more questions for you this is forum i'm mina kim support for forum comes from san francisco opera set 10 years after a school shooting the critically acclaimed opera innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about what's being called the newest artificial intelligence sensation, ChatGPT by San Francisco-based OpenAI, the large language model, if you know what that means, its potential uses and abuses. We're talking with Kevin Roos, a technology columnist for the New York Times, Natasha Tiku, a cultural reporter for the Washington Post, and Daniel Herman, a high school English teacher who wrote a piece for The Atlantic called The End of High School English in response to chat GPT, which can basically write anything on command, including an intelligent essay on Moby Dick. Let me go to caller Chris, who's on the line. Chris in Modesto, join us. 
Um, hi, thank you so much. Um, I've been, I'm in the process of learning to be a teacher. I'm career shifting. And when I started playing with chat GPT, and, and this might be a future iteration of it, the thing that jumped to my mind was this could be used as a digital tutor for outside the classroom. If you were sort of, if Microsoft and OpenAI were to really sort of do the right thing by society, in my opinion, they could help create sort of like a, a digital database of, you know, the content of K-12 state learning standards and make it a tool so that students outside the classroom, across language barriers, across distances, could access a tool like this. And it might be some future version of it. I think in that sense, if you put aside the things about plagiarism and stuff, this could be a game changer in terms of, um, I, I was using it myself to understand some sixth grade chemistry or science concepts that I'm going to be teaching in the upcoming year. And I didn't quite fully understand it because I'm a liberal arts major and it did a great job of helping me understand the concepts behind the lessons I needed to teach. I'll eventually yeah. need to teach students. That's just, you know, there are right. downsides to it, but I think if you look on the positive side and again, Microsoft and open AI, especially Microsoft, they should really put a lot of money behind a tool like this. Just throwing that out there if any of them are listening. But um, thank you so much. This is a really great topic. Oh, thank well, thanks, you. Chris, for the comment. I mean, I guess in some ways, Daniel, what I'm hearing and what Chris is saying, and, and even a little bit in what you are saying, is that this is out there. So let's figure out the best way to work with it and also consider maybe the places that it can take you if some of the, I don't know, more mechanical, tedious, or complicated aspects of something can be initially explained, then maybe it could take you to places beyond what you potentially imagined. Is that sort of your point and the point of your piece, Daniel? Yeah, sure. I mean, this seems to me just an obvious example of that most Silicon Valley of words, disruption. Any English teacher knows the countless hours that we've spent helping students improve their writing thousands of hours in my life doing whatever I can to explain what a dangling modifier is, why you need an apostrophe to show something as possessive, or why a quote introduced by a complete sentence ends in a colon and not a comma. And of course, we all have success stories, students who not only learn how to write, but learn to love writing. And then there are students who are brilliant in all sorts of other ways, or photography, or writing code, or taking things apart and putting them back together again, but writing just isn't their thing. Or they love the personal, expressive, reflective writing we do in my class, but then when it comes to quote-unquote formal writing, they, you know, collapse into some combination of crying and screaming. I've always had to tell them, this is just something you need how to do. You On both the macro level, argument and organization, and the micro, uh, comma splices and spelling or whatever. So if we can keep the good, learning how to get a student's full, wholehearted expression on the page, that's great. But a lot of it is just drudgery. If I can put a piece of writing into the chatbot and say, can you fix all the grammatical mistakes? That makes me wonder whether this is like the invention of the dishwasher. If I can put my writing into this thing and it makes it shine, no one's convinced me yet why we should just keep washing our dishes by hand because it builds character. Or it's essential to know about dangling modifiers or whatever. Ooh. I bet. Is that a popular view among your English teaching colleagues? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, that, grammar. that's... That, that's the other thing is I, I think the for the typical high school English teacher, 
uh, across across this country who has five classes a day and 40 students in each class, a big portion of their job is unavoidably going to be focused on preparing their students and training their students really to fulfill certain expectations within a small handful of entrenched systems and standards. And whether that's the formal expository essay or college missions essay or cover letter or or whatever. You know, I, I um, in the piece, I mentioned something about grammar being a metric for intelligence. I'm not saying it really is one. That's silly. But it seems inarguably that it is used as one, that we falsely equate having writing be, quote unquote, perfect with being smart or reliable or, or impressive or whatever. And a recruiter sitting in front of a stack of 100 cover letters is going to look for any excuse to start eliminating, eliminating people from consideration. And one of those ways is poor writing, poor grammar. So in rejecting those people, they might have missed out on someone who was going to be the perfect person for the job, work hard, make their colleagues feel good about themselves, whatever. If chat GPT allows someone to get a chance that they wouldn't have had otherwise, isn't that an unqualified positive? Well, I really appreciate, Daniel, this technology making you help us reconsider the value we place on writing in society and what type of, of writing. Daniel Herman, high school English teacher, check out his piece in The Atlantic, the end of high school English. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Well, let me go to another comment from a listener kind of along these lines. John writes, even spell check creates something I do not want over 90% of the time. I spend most of my time having to correct what AI creates. It makes me take more time to do anything, even this email. I had to correct multiple times to type to say the above. Interesting. But I wonder if that was in ChatGPT. I feel like ChatGPT is a lot better than what we've seen before with regard to spell check and things that correct or rephrase your, your emails to be more grammatically correct. Right, Kevin? Yeah, it's, it's, it's just a lot more capable than, than just spell checking. Um, I do think there is a tendency to overstate the degree to which this is, you know, this is the, the first uh, intrusion of technology into the the writing or creative expression process. I mean, yep. we've had spell check for many years. We've had apps like Grammarly for years. Like we we are we are sort of romanticizing. I fear the extent to which writing was sort of an organic human only process, um, ignoring the many ways in which technology has helped us uh, get better and faster at that over the years. Um, and this is different. This is this is more capable than than any of those tools. But it is just the latest in a long line of technologies that have helped people be more expressive and better at writing. Well, Jeff writes, is chat GPT writing its own code yet? Kevin? Yeah. I mean, it depends what you mean by its own code. Um, I certainly think like these models, um, they do improve on themselves and they, they, they train themselves um, in certain ways. And so, yeah, in some sense, they are, you know, it is writing its own code. Um, it is uh, It is also, you know, using feedback from human reviewers, as Natasha said, to uh, to improve itself. But yeah, it is it is improving. And that's part of what's so fascinating and strange and, and sort of ominous about this is that, you know, the rate of improvement on these large language models is extreme. And, you know, just two years ago, um, GPT-3 came out and already it's gotten all of these other uh, capabilities attached to it. So it's uh, as as impressive as chat GPT may be today. Um, it's going to be even more impressive to see what, uh, what we have two or three or four or five years from now. Well, Lawrence Wright writes, what do the folks at Ethical AI have to say about the bot? You know, what's funny is 
we had that comment earlier about um, interviewing ChatGPT, and I did ask ChatGPT about the moral and ethical questions around uh, its existence, <laughs> and ChatGPT gave me a bunch. It said that it it also scrapes not just you know general data but personal data, and there are questions about whether or not people's privacy is being violated. It definitely mentioned the bias thing. It talked about inaccuracy as an issue and especially how the mistakes can have serious consequences if GPT is used in medical or legal settings as well. It also brought up unemployment and how it raises questions about the potential impact on employment um, and replacing humans with this kind of technology and control that uh, GPT and other language processing technologies are powerful tools and who should have control over those kinds of technologies. And I'm wondering, Natasha, if you want to comment on any of those, or if there's something we're not thinking about here that also has broader ethical implications. Sure. Um, I mean, I, I, I think we've, we've talked a little bit about how it can, um, you know, deceive, uh, you know, gives false information um, and, uh reinforce old prejudices but in terms of the the you know the concerns about job obsolescence i i think that's actually a very um i think that ends up oftentimes being a very useful framework for the companies that build this technology you know if we um i, I think it's very natural right um especially living in a time of such great technological uh, tumult and breakthroughs. But, you know, if we think about like the narrative around self-driving cars, say, right, like that really, really helped Uber, I think, um, you know, kind of push its technology through as, as inevitable. And it, it really helped um, them in their labor disputes. Um, there was very much a sense at some point that like, you know, we don't really have to listen to, I mean, at least the rhetoric from, from certain corners of Silicon Valley, uh, we don't really need to listen to these drivers and their concerns because it's only a matter of time before self-driving cars will be on the road and, um, you know, this job will be obsolete. And I think there's even a trope in machine learning in AI that, um, you know, they, they come out with, uh, uh, like when new technology comes out, they, they kind of declare a certain job will be obsolete. Like, um, back in, in 2016, they famously, uh, this one professor famously said that, um, AI was gonna like end the job of a radiologist and that job is, is still there. Um, and, uh, I think they've kind of, the field has learned from that. And now they like to say like, uh, radiologists who have learned to use this technology will make radiologists who haven't learned this technology obsolete. Um, and I, I think that, you know, I, I, I just would, I guess, be wary of, of, yeah of that kind of fear mongering, um, because I think that, you know, gets back to that control, because if you feel like this is inevitable, and it's going to pe put people out of jobs, then that gives a lot of power to the companies that are pushing out this technology. And I think um, it also, you know, it, it kind of goes back to the point I was making about, um, you know, the, the, the debate around whether or not these, these 
this technology quote unquote understands um, language and has these like emergent properties, um, you know, that is getting closer to human intelligence, because I think that also takes away some of the, uh, I mean, this is what I've heard from AI researchers and a lot of really smart ethicists. Um, I was talking to Deb Raji, who is a fellow at, um, at uh, Mozilla, and she was talking to me about like how she really just it, you know, that that conversation, that debate is a distraction and it doesn't matter to her because it matters like who's accountable for that. You know, like Kevin was talking about code, um, you know, OpenAI ha helped build a, a, a language model called Copilot that GitHub, um, which is owned by Microsoft, as you can see, um, you know, there's there is a lot of control um, held in very few companies um, and uh, it oftentimes puts out the wrong code or right now it's being sued because it has um, it has duplicated code that is open source. So people's mm. proprietary information um, and who's responsible if it puts out the wrong code? Um, you know, what yeah. if that code was used to like build a bridge or, <laughs> you know, any number of things, um, you know, used to control traffic lights and a car accident happens, um, who is accountable there? And, you know, it makes me nervous even just hearing um, Daniel talk about like using this technology to learn a concept um, you know, how are we going to teach people literacy around these, this technology to just know that, yes, oftentimes it can be so useful. I mean, I love Wikipedia for that reason. You know, sometimes I just need really complicated things explained to me in a simple way. Um, but I think, you know, as somebody whose job it is to summarize things often, you know that you can really write something that sounds right, that's very, very, very off base. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, um, so, so those are some of my, my concerns that I've, that I have um, heard from, from talking to lots of different researchers about this. Natasha Tiku is tech culture reporter for The Washington Post. Kevin Roos is technology columnist for The New York Times. And you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Let me go to Nathan in Redlands. Hi, Nathan. Join us. Hi. I, I just wanted to throw out there, I threw out the writing center at Cal State San Bernardino. And, you know, writing and language are inextricably tied to identity. And... When we're training our tutors, when we're talking to the people who are working with students with their writing, we try really hard to get them to understand that there's not just one English and that the ways that people have grown up, the ways that they've learned to speak in their families um, is going to be different. And it's important to respect that. Yeah. And the idea that you would take an essay like a dishwasher and put it into something like this and get, you know, a quote-unquote clean grammatical copy out the other side. Um, I think it's important to remember there's not just one English, and we don't want to erase the individuality and the identities of the people who are writing, expressing their ideas, and, and trying to figure out, you know, who they are as yeah. they're trying to write and learn to write. So, you know, right, where, did this, where did this language come from? Who... You know, where did these examples that it's using come from? How is it learning to write? And then how are these software programs, you know, respecting 
the varieties of English that are out there. Yeah, I hear your point, Nathan. Another listener writes, language skills are not guaranteed, not genetic, and have to be learned. These tools are dangerous for humanity, really. Another listener writes, my friend and I signed up for this and banged out a dozen thank you notes for an event. It was crazy and eerie, but I will admit, totally helpful. The bot got the right tone. Had idioms. It sounded like me. I could not believe it. I used the text as the base and then edited it. What? A time saver. Uh, Kevin, you have hinted at this a little bit uh, about what could happen in three or four years. There is GPT-4. So what we are sort of losing our minds about is already so last year, right? <laughs> yeah, so GPT-4 is um, is OpenAI's um unreleased uh in development large language model the the newest version of that um rumors have it that it's going to be coming out sometime next year and i've talked to some folks who have uh who have seen it in action or played around with it or tested it and um they just say it's i mean it's just phenomenal um just you know everything about it is is better and more sophisticated than than what's currently available. So I think that's going to be another big moment. We'll uh, maybe we'll come back and yeah. and and, and uh, have our minds blown about that again <laughs> um, next year. But it does seem like the pace of development um, and improvement in these systems is improving so rapidly that honestly, even as someone who's employed to keep tabs on it all, it's a little hard sometimes. Well, at the end of your piece, we just have 30 seconds. You wrote, we are not ready. Why are we not ready in your view? <laughs> I mean, we are having a discussion, you know, that filled with unknowns and speculation about something that is in some ways already outdated um, compared to what's going to be coming out next year. So I just think our, our, our institutions, our regulations, our schools, our, um, our, our media are, you know, we're, we're just not having the kinds of discussions and we haven't been having them um that we that we need to be having Whew. well kevin bruce of the new york times thank you also natasha tiku of the washington post thank you as well and of course daniel herman thanks for coming on too caroline smith produced today's segment thank you listeners for listening and sharing your reactions this is forum i'm mina kim Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Did you ever wonder what it's like to live alone, hidden in the woods, not speaking to a single soul for 30 years? 
or wander the desert, uncover a hidden well, and dive to the bottom of the deepest water hole for 2,000 miles. The Snap Judgment Podcast takes you there with amazing stories told by the people who live them with an original soundscape that drops you directly into their shoes. Snap Judgment. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.